We continue here our study of God's covenant with Noah. We've already looked at Genesis 5, verse 29, where Lamech names his son by the spirit of prophecy, Noah. And we've looked at Genesis 6, verses 18 to 21, where God says, I establish my covenant with Noah. Now we come to uh, chapter 8, verse 20 to 9, verse 17. And this whole passage is really one passage. It's all the word of God. But the passage has four parts to it, and it's important to recognize those parts. First of all, we have an introduction to the whole section in chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. And here we have God speaking to himself of what he intends to do. In chapter 9, verse 1, God begins to speak to Noah and his sons. And his speech to Noah and his son, sons falls into three parts. First of all, in uh, verses 1 to 7 of that chapter, God uh, gives them certain commandments. And we'll be looking at those commandments in detail in uh, the next session. In the second place, God formally establishes his covenant with Noah. That's in verses 8 to 11. And in the third place, God gives to Noah the sign of his covenant, the rainbow. That's in verses 12 to 17. So you have these clear, these clearly marked sections in this uh, section, this larger section. The introduction in verses 20 to 22, uh, the uh, obligations or commandments that God lays on Noah and his sons in verses 1 to 7, the formal establishment of the covenant in verses 8 to 11, and the sign of the covenant in verses 12 to 17. I won't go into detail about this now, but if you look closely at verses 9, uh, 1 to 7 of chapter 9, I think you will see that there is a chiasm there. The passage begins and ends with this, basically the same words, God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And the material in between those two commandments is basically arranged chiastically. And the same thing is true of verses 12 to 17, where God gives the sign of the covenant. Much more clearly, in fact, that's arranged in, arranged in a chiastic fashion. At the beginning and end of those verses, 12 and 17, God talks about the sign of the covenant. And then in between those um, um, references to the sign of the covenant, God talks about seeing his rainbow in the cloud and remembering his promise. And at the very center of that passage, he mentions the promise when he sees the sign of the rainbow, he will remember his promise that he will not again destroy the earth with a flood. And these two chiasms then support the a statement of the covenant itself in verses 8 to 11. And that chia, that central passage itself, has a very uh, carefully structured uh, uh, order to it. God repeats himself twice there. He says, I will establish my covenant first. And he 
In the first time he says that, he says, I will establish my covenant with you and with your children and with every living thing. So the first statement there is with whom the covenant is going to be established. And then he repeats himself, I will establish my covenant. And this time he states the promise of the covenant that he will not again destroy every living thing with a flood. So you have a very carefully structured passage here from 8 verse 20 to 9 verse 17. The introduction, 8 verse 20 to 22. The obligations of the covenant, we might say, in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 9. The covenant itself in verses 8 to 11. And then the sign of the covenant in verses 12 to 17. And the two chiasms, 1 verse 7 and 12 to 17, support that central passage of the statement of the covenant itself. But what we want to do uh, now is look more closely at chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. There are two things here we should recognize about this, that this is immediately after Noah has left the ark. And the first thing that Noah does when he leaves the ark is he offers a sacrifice. He had taken seven of every clean animal onto the ark with him, and now he uses some of those clean animals to offer this sacrifice to God. This sacrifice that he offers to God is a burnt offering, the same kind of offering that Abel had offered to God in Genesis chapter 4. It is a bloody sacrifice requiring the killing of the animals that are going to be offered. And that is, I think, the main point here. This is in part Noah giving thanks to God for his protection during the flood. And it's a rededication of himself and his family to the service and worship of the God who had made his covenant with them and who had kept them through the flood. But the shedding of the blood of the animal points us to the substitutionary atonement that God requires the shedding of blood for the payment of the debt of sin, but that God also provides a substitute for us to pay this price of the debt of our sins. That's the whole point of all the bloody sacrifices in the Old Testament, that God is promising to his people by these bloody sacrifices that he commands them to make, that one day he will give a substitute whose blood will be a true payment of the price of our sins, of the debt of our sins. This is uh, related directly also to the covenant. This blood is later called in the scriptures the blood of the covenant. And what God is saying by these sacrifices then is he cannot enter into covenant with his people until blood has been shed. For the covenant to exist, for God to be the God of his people, for God to bless them with the blessings of the covenant, for God to enter into any kind of loving relationship with them, there must be blood 
shed. There's no other way into the fellowship of God. There's no other way into the presence of God. There's no other way into the covenant of God with his people except through the shedding of blood. And so blood continues to be the great theme of the covenants of God throughout the Old Testament. Blood became necessary immediately after Adam and Eve's fall. Blood was necessary for God's covenant with Abraham. God commanded Abraham as a sign of that covenant to circumcise his male children. That was a bloody sign. And it pointed to the circumcision of the heart, that is, the removal of sin from the people of God. Blood was necessary for that covenant. When God made his covenant with Israel, of course, he put bloody signs all over that covenant. All kinds of sacrifices were required in that covenant with Moses. This is the, uh, a key element, a, an essential element in God's covenant with his people. Blood must be shed. And throughout the Old Testament then, oceans and oceans of blood were, was shed, uh, were shed. Thousands and thousands and thousands of animals were killed to make atonement for the sins of the people. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, the apostle says there very simply, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. There's only one blood that can take away sin, and that is the precious blood of the Lamb who is without blemish and without spot, our Lord Jesus Christ. And all those animals were only foreshadowings of Christ. But we have it here. We have that pointing to Christ here in God's covenant with Noah. The need for Christ in order for that covenant to exist. God, in response to that covenant, uh, to that sacrifice rather, smells a sweet aroma. This offering of Noah is acceptable to him. And in response then to that sacrifice to Noah, God begins to talk in covenantal terms. The rest of these verses in chapter 8 refer to what God said to himself. And they basically are the promises, the things he says to himself, are basically the promises he's going to make to Noah in the rest of this section in chapter 9. That blood then assuages the anger of God against our sins and makes it possible for God to enter into a covenantal relationship with us. So let's look now at the particular things that God says to himself in response to this sacrifice of Noah. Verse 21, first, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now that goes back, of course, to Genesis chapter 3, first of all, where we read that God cursed the ground for man's sake because of Adam's sin. And God is here saying, I'm going to give relief 
to that curse. It takes us back also to Genesis 5, verse 29, where Lamech named Noah and referred to this same idea. Lamech said there, this one, that is Noah, will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Now the Lord is fulfilling that prophecy that Lamech has spoken. I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, even though man will continue to be evil, he says. Still, I'm not going to curse the ground again for man's sake. There's relief from that curse that was pronounced on the ground at the time of Adam. That's the first thing that God says to himself. The second thing is, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. And here he's talking about what he has just done in the flood. He has destroyed in the flood every living thing, except for Noah and his family and the animals who were on the ark with Noah. God says, I'm not going to do this again. Now, that's not a promise that he will never again destroy every living thing, period. It's a promise that he will never again destroy every living thing with a flood. Because we know from 2 Peter chapter 3 that God is going to destroy again every living thing by fire. So the promise is not to use the means of a flood again to destroy every living thing. He's not going to do that again. And this uh, promise God formalizes in his words to Noah in chapter 9. When he says, verse 11, Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So here God is expressing his intention to himself. And in chapter 9, he actually fulfills that intention by making that specific promise to Noah. The third thing that God says to himself here in verse 22 is, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. I think, first of all, that is a further explanation of what the second thing he said. When he said, I will not again destroy every living thing as I have done. He's saying, I'm not going to interrupt these cycles, which I've talked about. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night, as I did in the flood. These are going to persist as long as earth remains. I'm not ever going to bring such disaster upon this earth again as I have brought upon it in the flood. It's also, though, of course, the uh, promise that we can rely on these things, on seed time and harvest, on cold and heat, on winter and summer, and day and night, as long as earth lasts. God is keeping that promise even today. Now, I think that there is reference to this 
uh, passage, Genesis 8, in Jeremiah 33, verses 20 to 22. There God is talking about the certainty and the unbreakability of his covenant with David. And he says this, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. So God says there, my covenant with David is as unbreakable as my covenant with the day and with the night. As certainly as the sun rises every morning and sets every night, so certainly I will keep my covenant with David. I will not break that covenant any more than you can break my covenant with the day and with the night. Now, in his book, Christ of the Covenants, Robertson uh, takes this as a reference to Genesis chapter 1 rather than Genesis 8. And he does that because he relates this passage in Jeremiah 33 to a similar passage in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, verses 35 and 6, we do have a passage that's quite similar to the passage in Jeremiah 33. Again, God is talking about the unbreakability of his covenant, this time his covenant with Israel. And he says there, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Now, there's no specific use of the word covenant there in those verses. Nevertheless, there's a clear reference to God's covenant with Israel when he says, the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever, if those ordinances depart from before me. Now, it's pretty clear in Jeremiah 31 that there's, that's referring to Genesis chapter 1, who gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night. That's language that comes from Genesis chapter 1, where God created the sun for a light by day and the moon and stars for lights by night. But does that mean then that in Jeremiah 33... God is talking about Genesis chapter 1. I don't think so myself. Jeremiah 31 is clearly a reference to Genesis chapter 1. But I think that Jeremiah 33 is a reference to Genesis chapter 8. And to that covenant which God made with Noah in Genesis chapter 8. That covenant which pertained to the new world into which Noah had emerged after the uh, flood. And that covenant in which he said, day and night shall not cease as long as the earth remains. 
And therefore, Jeremiah uses the word covenant also in this passage. If you can break my covenant of the day and the night, then my covenant with David can be broken. So this covenant then becomes a pattern for the unbreakability of God's covenant with David. And if you note in Jeremiah 33, there are references there also to the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Israel. He refers to the Levites, the priests, my ministers, with whom he made covenant at the time that he made covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. And then he also refers to the multiplication of David's seed as the host of heaven cannot be numbered nor the sand of the sea measured. And those are words that God used to Abraham when he said, I will make your seed as innumerable as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. So he embraces really in these words all his covenants. They are all unbreakable, as unbreakable as my covenant with the day and with the night. Robertson does make another point with regard to this covenant. I think this is an important point. He quotes Romans chapter 10, verse 18. In verse 17, Paul, in the preceding context, in fact, Paul has been talking about the unbelief of Israel and the falling away of Israel. And he says in verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In verse 18, he says, but I say, have they not heard? That is, have Israel not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He quotes from Psalm 19, verse 2, then, Paul does here. But if you look at Psalm 19, verse 2, you find that the first part of that psalm is a description of the revelation of God in his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. And it's in that context that we read, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. It's the revelation of God in creation that Paul is referring to then. And that revelation of God in creation is directly related, of course, to the fact that In this creation, he reveals himself, and with this creation, he has made a covenant. What Robertson says, then, is that this covenant of God with the creation becomes the uh, support for the proclamation of the gospel, or to put it in different words, this covenant of God with creation becomes the stage upon which God works out his covenant of grace with Abraham, with Israel, with David, with Christ, and with his people in the New Testament. This covenant of creation, then this, or this covenant of God with Noah, supports, is the framework in which God works out his covenant of grace 
with his people. And that means that this whole uh, passage that we're talking about here in Genesis 8 to, uh, and 9 is a passage which is very relevant to us today. That God has removed the curse from the ground still has a bearing on our lives today. We live under that promise of God. I will not again curse the ground for man's sake as long as earth remains. God's promise never to destroy again every living thing as he has done is a promise by which we live today with the assurance that in spite of great floods that we see in our own time, nevertheless assures us that God will not again destroy the earth with a flood. That possibility simply does not exist, no matter how bad the floods we see may get. And we live under the promise that seed time and harvest, cold and winter, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease as long as earth remains. God maintains those cycles of the seasons and of day and night and of seed time and harvest as long as the earth remains. This covenant of God then with Noah is a covenant under which we still live today. And it's important for us to recognize that. Important for us to give thanks to God for it. And to live daily in the consciousness that it is he who is upholding us on this earth. He who is upholding seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night, by his providential hand. And because of the promise which he spoke to Noah, in spite of all the wickedness of men in our own times, God maintains this covenant for our sakes and for the sake of the covenant of grace. May God's word be a blessing to you.